Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another week of Growing with My Fellow Growers. I'm your host, Jack Greenstock, joined, as always, by an amazing panel. I'm going to kick it over first to Spartan Grown. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, everybody. I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram at Spartan Grown, all one word, no spaces. Or you can just, the best way is to reach me through email, and that's spartangrown at gmail.com, and I can help you with all of your cannabis growing questions, hopefully. Sorry about this blurry camera today. I can't fix this damn thing. <laughs> it's okay. But uh, yeah, we're definitely going to be taking questions. So uh, if people haven't already joined in, we've got Real Red Hairs and Weedner DWC if, as the first few joining in. I see them in the live chat. Next up, I'm going to pass it over to Dr. MJ. Hey, yeah, Dr. MJ Coco um, from CocoForGanimus.com. Excited to be back for another episode with you guys. So um, yeah. We're happy to have you back. And next up, we've got Matthew Gates. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. Um, looking forward to talking to everybody in the chat. We just got back from the San Diego Cannabis Cup from yesterday. That was pretty fun. And uh, yeah, some of those people, I think, even watch the Cheap Home Grow here. So if you do, sound off in the chat. It's always cool to actually find out that you know they're real people <laughs> it's not just a number on a dashboard or something you know we've, we've got the chatters and i definitely recognize like the regulars out there but when you see like you know thousands or you know even just one thousand um like we were talking a little bit about before the show it's kind of a lot of people even though it's not like the largest number ever um it's it's cool to realize that those people are out there and listening and we can connect with them if we go to these events and things like that but last and certainly not least who's with us right now on the panel noah the Groa. how's it going everybody uh, yeah, happy to be here and uh, talk to you guys and uh, get into it. So this week, we're going to be taking chat questions and doing some Q&A. But Matthew, before the show, was talking a little bit about how he just went to a uh, cannabis cup, I believe, here in San Diego. So I'll pass it over to him and then he could tell us a little bit about his experience there and maybe the number of people and the weather and all that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So this was in San Diego. This was the San Diego Cannabis Farmers Market. Uh, or at least the, the people who created it the, uh, are associated with that group, uh, my buddy Joshua Caruso. Um, and yeah, it was about a thousand people, which Spartan mentions very uh, adroitly, that it's actually not very much compared to a lot of other places. And it's because it's super restrictive here in Southern California, not a whole lot of local cultivation. In fact, I got asked that question thrice. Um, and I was like, yeah, no, there's really not a whole lot of that going on here, unfortunately. But it was really nice. Uh, you can find images and video on uh, Instagram at the very least. They've been posting that up. Honeyflower Collective is another group that was associated with them. Um, it was very fun. It was very cool because I think Jack, you'll agree with me here. We've talked about it a few times, but like the, can the San Diego or the Southern California cannabis community, at least to my mind, has always been kind of disjointed, not really connected. And there's a lot of practical reasons for why that is uh, but a lot of it's just the fact that there are people who are groups that aren't like commercial of course that don't have licenses and things like that but even then you know there, it's like there's this there's these various small smaller entities and groups and they don't really um they don't really come together as much as perhaps in other places uh, it was really nice it was an award ceremony so um i and a few other people got to make some input in fact uh, I really liked that uh, when I was coming around the, the the other side of the event, you know, I actually, I got to have, I got some tickets that I was able to distribute to people. Um, and 
you know, I didn't want to like walk all the way to the front of the, uh, the event place. So I just asked like, Hey, what if, uh, what if I was one of the judges and the person's like, everyone was a judge, which is good. I actually really liked that response. Um, because there were a lot of people who were able to cast their, their ballots essentially and, um, and see what they liked. So there was like an outdoor and indoor, a home grow, um, award. And they actually, they had these really nice wood carving, um, like burnt wood, uh, trophies. Trophy. Yeah. And then also there were some that were made out of, I didn't snag a picture. I should really should have, um, it, like those, uh, those like glass molds where you kind of have this like 3d image inside of this like block of like crystal or glass or whatever it is. So that was really cool. They had like cannabis flower and it was very, very detailed, you know, and then they had like the lettering and everything like first place, second place, whatever you got. Um, and yeah, so it was, it was really very nice, very, very exciting, uh, very motivating to be able to see this sort of like collaboration, this coalescing um, of different groups, different people, many people who I recognize, several people, some people, <laughs> I had a few times where people were like, hey, are you Sync Angel? I'm like, yeah, I am. And they're like, oh, I want to get a picture. I want to talk about, let's talk about some stuff. A few people who I've seen other San Diego events that are smaller too. Um, so it was just very, uh, just a nice enjoyment um that i had very enjoyable experience um yeah yeah so that'll, that's what i'll say about that it sounds like it was a good time i actually um had somebody reach out to me asking me to enter the home growers side of the cup and time constraints and things like that i just wasn't able to and uh, i think that they wanted a pretty good amount of weight so that a bunch of people could get samples and most of my homegrown is enjoyed by myself and lady greenstock and a couple friends and things like that so i always feel a little bit weird parting with you know a good chunk of it because I, I put a lot of heart and soul into it and i have a really small operation so i'm not really chasing the um trophies or anything like that or at least not yet maybe i will someday um but i enjoy the smoke that's what really really matters to me and it's like so hard to replace something that i grew really well so as much as i know i could maybe impress some of the people and judges um or maybe even get reamed. Like, this is some minutes or whatever. <laughs> then, uh, <laughs> well, I would definitely recommend nobody uh, chase any trophies. And I do think that some people, you know, like you, you, you make a good point. You have a very small operation, and some people were home grow just by dint of not being a commercial entity. But uh, <laughs> just because you're there's people who are growing in a smaller tent, and there's people who are growing in their five acre land up in Ramona or something. You know what I'm trying to say? So well, I know because most, <laughs> if not all, I'd say like 97% of my friends in the cannabis community locally are non-permitted, you know, operations. Yeah. They're growing for themselves and uh, whatever else they want to do with their things. But there are a lot larger operations than my own and a lot of San Diego. I mean, from the groups that I've gotten connected with, it just seems like a lot of people are just kind of still underground doing their own thing. Um, yeah. Some of them have moved. Yeah. I mean, I want to give Brandon Rust a chance to jump in because he just uh, not too recently, but went from San Diego to Oklahoma. So I know that's one of the options that growers in the area who were not able to get into the legal permitted scheme uh, chose. But with that being said, Brandon Rust, welcome in. Hey, what's going on, guys? I uh, think uh, it's been a minute since I've been here. I've been so, so busy. But uh, yeah, uh, I'm here and uh, glad to be uh, back with you guys all and uh yeah if you guys are interested in what i'm doing you can check out the uh, bokashi earthworks website at bokashi earthworks.com uh all purchases over 50 dollars are free now free shipping i mean <laughs> i should say that'd be impressive all orders over 50 dollars are free 
That's the best that's deal I've ever heard of, man. That's awesome. No, that's not. Yeah, but uh, we have free shipping now. I, I was finally it was like, I'll tell you what, logistics is a freaking nightmare, and when it comes to uh, products and like trying to figure all that out, both um, from a like coding and integration standpoint for, for the software part, it's a goddamn nightmare. Uh, working with with shipping companies and this and that, uh, that's a nightmare in their customer service. So I found the best thing to do is just um, just add the, pro- the the cost into the product itself and then offer free shipping. It just works so much better. I think that's how like uh, like a lot of modern websites are doing it now. Like even with Amazon, you're paying for Prime, but then it says free shipping. And then like I just looked at an item the other day. It was 19.99 direct from the uh, manufacturer. Um, but you'd have to pay like however much shipping. And then on Amazon, it was $29 with free shipping. So it would roughly equal out, you know, I would guess about to the yeah. same. Places that, that give away free shipping basically have to charge that in some place. I mean, shipping's a big expensive thing. So it is. Somebody's got to pay for it. Yeah. I mean, 50 strands of green. I'm shipping a paperback book, sometimes internationally. The international books are listed at $44, half of that. Or more is the shipping cost. So that just puts into perspective. Like literally, uh, I'm not. I'm trying to offer it as affordably as possible, but it's just like it's a thick paperback book. So uh, sending that, it's, it's weight and size. Yeah, both, uh, difficult. And it's better. You'll convert more sales. People like it better when you price it that way, as opposed to say like it's a twenty dollar book, and then they get like three quarters of the way through the checkout process, and they realize there's like a twenty four dollar fee for shipping, and like yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's that, some kind of psychology like, that's associated with it yep. with an extra fee, you know, where people are like, oh man, you know what? 100%. Like you just that. got it. That's just the price up front. And they don't even want to know how much of that is the shipping cost. People think of it as like a junk fee, but it's really like it is just the, the shipping. And I know like our president has rallied against that for like airlines, like that'll tack on, uh, you know, uh, excise fee or whatever, a uh, credit card fee, an online order fee, and then like uh, insurance that really like doesn't provide anything because they still cancel your fucking flight on you and <laughs> don't get shit for it. Kind of but... America, it's kind of a US thing where the prices aren't the actual prices. And see, like when you go in the grocery store and you see the price on a loaf of bread, that's not what you pay at the end. But if you go to a European, if you're over in Europe and you see a price, that's the price you fucking pay. Oh, with sales tax, we almost never include sales tax. In the I know. That's what I'm saying. This should just be the final price. on there. I'm like baffled by the, I don't understand how it's even legal that we have to give up so much of our fucking income. We have income taxes and the taxes. Oh, I know, dude. It's like everything. people don't realize how much we're taxed. We're taxed. Dude, Taxation is theft. Well, before we get too deep into the uh, anti-tax, right yeah, now, like, I got a question yeah. over here. Somebody thankfully copied into the uh, Zoom. Uh, oh, I just closed it down. Let's see, chat. And thank you to our lovely panelists. And this was Spartan Grown who copied a question from Oki Grower, who's been on many times in the past. So shout out to you, Oki Grower. Um, when, or Oki Grow, I should say. When drying, if you can't get your temps much lower, um, sorry. I've got a little thing popping up that I can't read the actual message now. Oh, much lower than 70 degrees. Would you still recommend 60 RH or should I change it? Pass that to whoever wants to take it first, I guess. I yes. think Doc or Spartans. Who? Me? Spartans uh, jumping in and then Doc, you can follow. Go for it, Spartan. I got a quick answer. Yes. Yes, I would recommend the 60% humidity. Yeah, I pretty much would too. 
Unless you're like um, day of harvest, I might say 55, 50, 55 day of for a day or two and then to 60. But generally speaking, I would say 60. Yeah. Even the higher degrees. temperature is going to sort of encourage it to dry Too faster. Dry. Yeah. Um, if you think about it in terms of, of dew point or absolute humidity, there's less moisture in the air at 60% RH and 70 degrees than there is at 60% RH and 60 degrees. Um, so as a result of that, yeah. your, your plant's going to dry a little bit faster, but I don't think if you can't control temperature, I don't think it's worth raising your RH higher than that. I, I actually think that that's specifically dangerous. So yeah. Matthew, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, no, I basically what's already been said, if you go higher than that, I feel like you really run into risk. You're really tempting fate for some spores that you don't want to germinate to germinate, especially bud rot and that kind of a thing. So I definitely that's like yeah. the major critical one, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And even 65, I mean, it's fine for the buds themselves to end up like 65 in a jar, but I wouldn't, you know, when you're trying to dry them down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They can have and a lot I of access with what Spartan said too. The first couple of days, I'm fine with being sort of lower than 60 RH um, when there's really zero chance that I'm going to overdry the bud because there's still a lot of moisture in the bud. Um, yep. And then up to 60 RH in that situation, I think would be okay. Yeah, I was going to say that for the first 24 hours, I don't mind lowering it quite a bit in my spell self. And then, I mean, I it also do. depends. If you're, if I usually, you're, if you're, oh, sorry, go ahead. Nope, go ahead. Uh, I usually, uh, like commercially, when I have a lot drying in a smaller space, I'll drop my RH down to like 45, 50, you know, for the first couple of days. You yeah. Know, because what, what it comes down to is the higher, the higher the humidity and the higher the temperature, the higher the microbial growth will be if there's any type of even if you don't have like botrytis or anything like that it's just the you know the nature of microbes and the fact that a lot of these things are ubiquitous and all over the environment in a stratophytic you know microorganism will start to you know colonize dying material yeah i think and of like florida where it's like warm and wet you've got everything just grows like algaes like different molds and mildews and yep. everything really not not everything but a lot of stuff grows and thrives there that we wouldn't want affiliated with our cannabis specifically molds and mildews and um i think that i would definitely throw my hat in the ring of maybe 50 to 55 percent rh for that first day or two is uh no problem at all in my book and then gradually raising it you know 55 up to 60 but then not trying to get too much higher than that because once you do you significantly increase your risk and some people are really worried about uh over drying but i, I think you're better to be on the overdry end because you can always rehydrate it slightly than to you know be completely filled with mold in my experience at least that's what i would i would prefer a little bit overly dried bud to a moldy bud any day uh, although neither of them is ideal you want to slow and low and control the dry as much as you can and or cure however you want to go about looking at it rowdy 420 says at brandon rust do you soak your seeds in anything special or just plain water No, I usually just use clean water, like whatever it is, RO or distilled water. And I just soak them for like 24 hours. And then I usually put them in soil or 
I'll just put them in paper towels and won't even soak them. We'll put them in wet, wet paper towels and I'll let them fully sprout and then transplant them. But typically what I do is I just throw them in water and I let them crack open and then I put them in soil. It's the easiest way for me to do it. Spartan Grown, do you have any uh, thoughts for that question there? Do you soak your seeds in anything or just my water? No, no. I mean, there's evidence that it shows that there it's beneficial to do seed soaks and uh, you, you can either go the sterile route or you can go the microbial route or you can go the humic acid and kelp and hormone route. But um, I'm with Brandon, man. It's like when you, I love popping seeds. So when you like popping a lot of seeds, who's got the time to fuck around with all that? I've had very good success with just water and a fucking root riot cube, man. Water and root riot cubes, man. It works so good. Well, and yeah, I think, I as think the cheap grow, like... we want to cut out costs. So if we can eliminate using like a product, like herb natural or some of these more uh, expensive things that I've seen people try and soak their stuff to inoculate it. I will admit I do tap water too, man. I'm not even, it's nothing special. Yeah, that's what I use for like 90%. I've looked at my local, uh, you know, water tests every single year when I get them. And I've grown with our water versus my tap water side by side and tried to see if there was a major difference. And I came to the conclusion that it wasn't worth the effort, especially where I'm at. Like the city that I'm in takes a pretty good effort to make sure that their citizens have clean water. Thankfully, I know not everywhere is like that, but um, if you do the due, due diligence, you can find that your tap water is actually probably not only safe, but it might be beneficial. Like Doc has mentioned in the past with like EC balancing, you have a small load of certain stuff. It's not like it's going to feature plants, but you aren't going to have to add as much into it. And you've got at least a tiny uh, trace amounts of micronutrients and minerals and things like that. It can certainly help with pH buffering. So it doesn't sort of, uh, you know, you try to pH adjust RO water, you're just driving all over the map. So, um, but it depends on the source of your water. I think more in terms of an electrical conductivity issue, some water is just kind of like coming out of the tap at, you know, four or 500 EC. And it's kind of tough to, to add a lot of nutrients to that if you're fertigating. Um, other than that, though, I definitely think you can use tap water. You know, seedlings and germination is one of the times that I do use um, bottled water. And it's usually not sort of RO, it's just filtered water. Um, again, it, it's just about sort of keeping it low electrical conductivity. Um, that osmosis is very easy with, with that low electrical conductivity water. Um, and I don't put anything else sort of in the, the imbibing water for seeds and germination. I do soak them for a couple hours, uh, after scuffing and before going into paper towels, I'm one of these people that Spartan can't stand that has like, you know, five different steps to my germination protocol, but I get my seeds up and growing quickly. Um, I try to have a really high germination sort of success rate and, you know, in my home grow, I'm only usually growing like four plants or like eight plants or something max, right? So it's it, it's not really that much work. If you're growing hundreds of plants, that's a different situation. So, um, you know, and cannabis seeds are also kind of expensive, right? Relative to other seeds that I grow. So I want to be sure that, you know, I get as close to 100% success rate. And I kind of think that that speed towards germination is one of the factors to success. I mean, if, if a seed takes too long, it just kind of runs out of energy and dies. So doing some of those things to, to speed it along. Um, and I, incidentally, I think one of the biggest advantages of using the paper towel step is you get enough root that you can orient your plant. 
So you can sort of point it in the right direction and it doesn't have to like point itself in the right direction, which can take a day at that stage. I mean, they're just little tiny little things. When I um, do the paper towel method, I'll hang it in a bag on like a, in a cabinet and I orient it. So the seed is at the top of the paper towel and it has only room directly straight down to sprout. It's, I go. used to do it on a plate and they'd kind of curly cue all over the place and, and mix it with each other. Now I have like five seeds all the way across the top, like one, two, three, four, five across. And then they just have five straight down tap roots. You could take tweezers and literally take your pinky or a pencil, poke something in the soil. You have a nice hole drop it down so the head is basically just really at the top and then you can kind of gently pack yep. it around or even backfill it in and, and i um, try not to even take it off the paper towel i use one little piece of paper towel per seed so i can pick up the whole piece of paper towel that's got the seed in it and like carefully fold back the paper towel and like lower the seed tail first right into the hole without ever touching it without ever touching anything other than my fingers touch the paper towel yeah i like that yeah. But Less if you put like better. 50 paper seeds in the, into one paper towel, you're, you can't do that. Like you got to find some like way this. to fish them out. So I like just doing that and then water and watering it. And like, yes, success. I, the last time I, know, I, but I, that's, I mean, <laughs> we're only sharing that. that's the thing. It's a panel. We all have different ways. So there's no I, one I, I like spend some time with I my like plants, two... but you like hand watering and stuff later on. I mean, I don't think that the seedling stage is extra investment. It's definitely the, the time of the grow where I check on my plants most frequently. I'll check on seeds and seedlings like every few hours, right? Later on, <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, and they grow. I'm... They're way more sensitive. They're way more likely to die. They're just not yep. as resilient yeah. as even an early veg, like two week old plant is a hundred times more hardy than a one or two day old seedling. And so once it's established, like you can kind of take it a little easier and not have to, you know, be hovering. Um, yep. But I agree that cannabis seeds are expensive. And so I've tried to, and now that I make them myself, I've also tried side by sides. It's just fun to do citizen science where I treated one with H2O2 at 3%, you know, five milliliters into a 500 milliliter cup. It's a very low concentration, but even that small amount and uh, dunking them in a cap of H2O2 before I dunk it into there was enough to increase my germination rate from like 85, 90% to near hundred percent or even just hundred percent in many circumstances. And I used to use the seed cracker if they didn't pop and I'd pop or even sometimes before they would pop, I would seed crack everything. And then that gave me a really high germination. So I just like to know the tools in the tool belt and see how they work for myself. And then I can kind of see like last time I just bought seed starter mix, filled up, you know, X amount of pots, planted the seeds. I had pre-moistened the soil uh, through bottom watering so that it had a nice even uh, you know, moisture through the whole entire thing. And, you know, lo and behold, hundred percent germination. So it, it can, there's so many different ways to go about it. Um, I will say that method I do feel like was slower, but you're, I was comparing it to myself doing like a paper towel method or a pre-soak where this time I was literally just taking a dry seed and putting it into a wet soil and then waiting. And it felt like, you know, about a week before everything was like up sprouted and like a hundred percent of them were up and sprouted and starting to grow past the cotyledon. And, when you use the um, paper towel method, sometimes I've left them in there for like 72 hours and the, the um, oh, it's, too long. it's so long that when you plant it, it's like you can even plant it up and like smush it yeah. around there and it'll just start growing because yeah. it's like a live plant at that point. And uh, yep. 100%. Oh, and they're growing. They're not pushing out through seeds. You end up with more helmet heads but you, you, because it's actually the action of pushing up through this the soil that kind of sheds off the helmet 
but like I'll help my plants off with their little helmets if they need help off and they're 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 growing the other side to that is it's a little bit more predictable like I know how big my plants are going to be generally unless like I encounter some sort of problem with them like on day four on day five on you know even on day two or whatever um sort of how long it's going to take and other germination techniques like sometimes it takes five days sometimes it takes you know 10 days sometimes you know you don't know when to give up waiting for them to break the soil or whatever um so I like to know a little bit better because I'm on a pretty tight schedule too like I'm gonna usually flip my my plants on day 30 from seed gets wet so if a seed doesn't make it or if it you know I, I have to like launch a backup seed or something I want to do that pretty quick I don't I don't have a whole lot of time to sort of sit around unless I'm gonna have to really change the nature of my grow I agree with that in cocoa, especially uh, 30 day, anything longer than 30 day from seed, the plants just get way too large for uh, most tent growers, I would imagine. So it is yeah. really a timeline based thing. And when you're talking about maybe a week or more to even sprout above the soil, that is a pretty large percentage of unknown. And uh, it could be 80%. Day seven, I'll have, I'll have full four. serrated leaves coming in, you know, plants going to be actually, you're going to see node two coming up and, and node one's going to be open. And yeah, if you just drop your seed, you know, half an inch underneath some peat and keep the peat moist, it, it may just be kind of poking up through the ground on that day. So there's definitely, you know, easing the, the seeds path to life. Also, this is something for older seeds or seeds that you're worried about germination or have a lower probability of germination. It, it's basically like seeds are alive, especially for older seeds. Seeds are alive. And they're metabolizing their energy pretty much always. They're in a very, very low dormant state. So not much, but that's why seeds have a shelf life essentially is because they'll burn through their reserves. So the, the older the seed are sort of the more of its energy reserve it's going to have spent. So it's incumbent upon you to get those cotyledons and the first leaves open to get it photosynthesizing. And it's sort of a race to get those first leaves open because the, the seed has a limited amount of energy to do that. So in those situations, I definitely think it's worth sort of babying the seed along and, and going through the paper towel stage and, and other things, keeping the conditions well, because it can definitely stay, save days off of that. You get rewarded for the effort, I would say. And um, on top of the 3% H2O2 thing, I didn't mention earlier because it used to be my only method. Um, and then a couple of times, even after I washed them, I feel like they would get some weird molds or mildews in the early stages. So I've followed up now with my first watering, I'll give micro plus or some micro product, but it's 99% of the time it's micro plus. I try to like, in my head, I'm like thinking like strip anything if there is bad stuff with the H2O2 or at least give a chance to fight it off and then come back and follow it up with a good microbe that I'm going to be providing throughout the rest of the grow. So it sounds like you're probably using pharmaceutical H2O2, right? Uh, actually, no, I'm using really low strength, like general 3%. Um, just whatever over the counter. Um, yeah. So it's for like first aid. Yeah. Yeah. Not the 30% or whatever. So at that stage, it's going to be fine. I get this question sometimes. So for germination, it's going to be fine because you're using such a tiny amount of it. But growers sometimes ask if they can include that in their nutrient solution. And the issue there is that pharmaceutical grade H2O2 uses heavy metal as stabilizers, usually tin is used as the stabilizer and they don't list it on the 
on the ingredients, they list like stabilizing agents. And then you'll have to do your own research and like what type of stabilizing agents are used in pharmaceutical grade H2O2. And you'll realize that it's usually a heavy metal like tin. So if you're using a lot of it, like to knock down your reservoir or something later on, you can develop sort of heavy metal problems and you may fail testing. That's a great note. That's a really I good point. had not um, heard of that or been made aware of it. Thankfully, I don't use it in that regards. But if you're a DWC I don't think person, you have any problem in germination stage, right? You're yeah. Using that and it's like, but it's great because this show goes far and wide. I mean, literally internationally. And we've got a lot of people that listen to even the podcast after that are never in the chat live. Yeah. So I appreciate that yeah. feedback. And then I also want to give Noah Vigro a, a chance to uh, give some feedback on uh, what do you like to do? Do you do anything like uh, pre-soaking your seeds and anything or just plain water? How do you go about getting them sprouted? You might be stuck on mute, Noah. I'm sorry, what was that? So do you do anything special when you're popping seeds, like uh, pre-treat them with something like a microbe? I think Spartan mentioned there's like some people that do um, like hormones or uh, kelp and things like that. And then there's also people that, like myself, use H2O2 or some other product to pre-treat the seed. Or some people just go straight into plain water. So I was curious if you have any methods with your seed that you like to employ. No, uh, just pretty much what everyone is talking about. I, if I do it, I usually just use the little the little cubes and um, just put it, you know, that's basically, and get them wet. That's it. I haven't really done anything fancy. You know, I've, I've, I've done, you know, paper towel and all that, but, you know, nothing. The cubes work so damn yeah. well. That's yeah. like, they're, they're real simple. I mean, it's hard to even like overwater with them because they, like, if you, Ring it out so it's just not even if it's too damp i think they'll probably still sprout because it'll just slowly lose some of that moisture and get the seed to go but like i recommended uh, and had recommended me soak them for like five minutes and then kind of do like a, a light squeeze just to make sure it's not like sopping wet and then pop your seed in there and they're pretty much off to the races as long as that seed is good to sprout it's probably gonna sprout in that root riot or rapid root or whatever uh, puck uh, even the jiffy pellets i think are pretty successful a lot of time yeah, that's a good tip. They're really relatively cheap and they work really good. Especially yeah, use those too. If you're going to go into peat anyway, might as well use a peat, you know. And even going into cocoa. Peat. I think Doc starts with the uh, peat uh, pucks as well and then goes into cocoa and it's, it's successful both ways. So it's definitely... Yeah, it's just easier on the, the little seedlings to be in peat, which can basically tolerate plain water and, and not create problems. Um, Brandon Rust, you're the only one who hasn't uh, weighed in so far on this one. So do you do anything when you're popping seeds as far as treating them with like microbes or something else? Nah, water? I don't do, I don't do anything unless I feel like I need to. Uh, if I've got some new healthy seeds that I know are going to pop, I just usually toss them in, in water for 24 hours. Once they've cracked open, I stick them in soil. Um, I do, I do like to use like some micro plus once I water them like into the soil or some trichoderma with the bacillus subtilis, just because that will aid in case there's too much moisture. Um, because I'm having, you know, these, these nice humid, like hot environments when we're kind of popping these things and that's ideal for microbial growth. And so having something that's going to be beneficial can help, uh, outcompete anything that could potentially uh, cause the that taproot to like dampen off and have that seedling die. Um, so that's just one of the things after the fact that they after they've already popped and I'm putting them in. Um, the only time 
that'll do like a seed wash is if I feel like I have like a older seeds or, a, or like, uh, I don't know where the, you know, the seeds look kind of dirty, you know, like that I could do a seed wash with hydrogen peroxide where I'll just put, um, a small amount of hydrogen peroxide, usually like one cap full of hydrogen peroxide in like a little 16 liter or 16 ounce bottle of water. And I'll just shake up the seeds real good. And then before I'm doing my seed soak, uh, and then really old seeds, there are things that, uh, that you can do. Um, I haven't like ever really had success trying it though. You know, I've heard that like some, some seeds that I've had, I just haven't been able to get to pop, um, some like 22 year old plus seeds. And I've used things like amino acids. I've used microbe products. I've used uh, gibberellic acid, but uh, without any, uh, without any effect. So the, the I have I've best never tip I get able... for old is is crack and GA three. Kyle Breeder he was the one who got like I think like twenty five to fifty percent of seeds from like the eighties and nineties using fifty to one hundred fifty parts per million. I wish I knew ECE or something, but try a bunch of different ranges within that for um using ga3 and he yeah. said that they weren't super stretchy it just got them to go kagi u1 from coastal seeds popped a 40 year old seed with a seed cracker it popped the seed uh started to grow a taproot but because he didn't use ga3 i think i, I don't think it had enough stored energy maybe its own ga3 that would naturally be in the seed or you know whatever other hormones yeah, the plant actually has those horm the, the stored energy is hormones like ga3 that's that's what you're doing you're adding that drabilic acid back into the plant and so that's i, I would say is the best bet you want to crack it so that way uh, if it was fresher i would say scarification works great getting water in there that's also why i think dock seeds sprout really quick if you shake it up with the uh you know um whatever uh, sandpaper like I, or like i know boxes. that none of my none of my grapefruit times super silver haze will pop and those who i think are from 98 did they pop I've when tried, you first i have hundreds them? of the seeds i have hundreds of them and i've done every which way i've seen cracked i've done seed cracking and then other stuff i have gone like did you ever ocean. get those to grow though like did they grow no. when you first made them no but here's the thing they they weren't I didn't make these ones. These were given to me. Somebody gave me a, a library from like 98, had the seeds in it from 98 to 2003. My wonder would be <laughs> if it was a sterile cross or if they got like really, really hot and just like nuked them. Just like one good time. It just nuked that batch. You can and... definitely do things that screw up the seeds and then they're just dead. Absolutely like that. Um, you know, microwave. But it's, but it's not just that. It's like I've done the same thing with a, a bunch of sub cool seeds from 2000 that I have. I still have a bunch of them and I only cracked a couple of them. And it's tried a challenge. Things. How do you store them? How have they been stored? Uh, well, I don't, these well, came he to doesn't me, know beforehand, right? So these came to me like a year ago and they're from 2006. So I can't, I can't say how those were stored. Me personally, all yeah. of my, all of my, all of my seeds are just stored in my, in the, my, in my dark closet where it's, it's just nice. It just stays nice and cool in there. It's like probably 68 degrees all the time. Those yeah, are going to have like a five year shelf though. life. Seeds won't last as long at that temperature. If you want them to last longer to put them in a refrigerator. But, but the here's 40s. the thing. I have seeds that came from that exact same library from that exact same time period. No problem. They all pop, you know what I mean? So it's just well, there's it's, absolutely vi variability in viability of seeds so and that can be related to the the mother plant that they were growing on 
um, and how healthy she was. That can also be related to, you know, the genetics and um, the specific strains or whatever. So there's a lot of factors that can impact sort of seed variability or seed viability. Um, oh, yeah. And so that's not particularly surprising that like one batch of seeds did okay and another batch of seeds went through sort of the same storage situation and, and didn't do okay. If the storage situation across 20 years or whatever was challenging some seeds are just going to run out of gas before the other ones would and i, think I, and I you... understand that i just personally have never had experience using you know a biostimulant type product to like get something old to pop i've just never been able to do it personally yeah yeah i definitely wonder what makes it work for some people and, and not for others and i think the doc really hit the nail on the head with a couple of things like the genetics the health of the mother plant that it came from um I've noticed that from one breeder to another breeder, even if like, I know I, I could watch them and video document the process of when they made the seeds, like how old they are. And I think the health of the plant really is a big thing. And so is genetics. So uh, great points there, Doc. And we have a, another great question from Sky Overhead, who says, question for Synthanol. Is there a natural predator for Harlequin bug? Merganacea histrionica. Mergantia histronica. It sounds like histrionica. Alrighty. And then it is on my kale plants. Thanks. Yeah, I would use, uh, I would not use like a predator though. Um, there are, there, there might be some parasitic wasps that go after them. I don't know any off the top of my head and it might not be a commercially available species, but uh, actually for that, I would use something like Buberia bastiana. So they're basically, they're pentatomids. So they're like stink bugs kind of. Um, and so in my experience, a lot of those, a lot of that family is is um, mild to moderately um, susceptible to like Buveria and some other entomopathogenic fungi. So I wouldn't rely on a predator. I don't actually think there, I can't think of a commercial predator at the moment that would be, and also some places you might not have access to it, right? So there's also that, I don't know where this question is coming from, but usually you can get Buveria or Isaria or some of the other entomopathogens and they also like to cluster a lot so there's another reason for that so the nymphs don't have wings but the adults do and if you find some eggs on your kale they're going to be like arranged usually in like a cluster almost like a hexagonal cluster very pretty actually um but you can just crush those uh if you want to be preventative and um, if you do find some of these nymphs, yeah, they tend to, they kind of look like little ladybugs to a lot of people, but they're not ladybugs. They're a totally different group. And um, they do like to kind of feed near each other. So I feel like you can really hit them with something like Buveria and you can get a lot of them at once. I also have the, uh, by the way, I also have the, uh, they just posted the people who won at the Farmer's Cup if we want to delve into that before we get to that i have a related question to the question that you were just answering and it makes me think a little bit because they're talking about kale um i know something that's banned on cannabis is microbutanol which is known as like eagle 20 because when it's inhaled through a smoking apparatus it converts i believe to hydrogen cyanide making it unsafe for consumption however this is a common product for food like tomatoes and other um, cultivated products so with that being in mind is there, with the knowing that it's kale, not cannabis, 
would you be able to like go maybe harder with like a, a spray that because you're not smoking it um you could maybe take out the i know buveria you gave us a great example yes. but um if that's not available or if there's something else that is like non-cannabis friendly that's kale friendly is out there I'm, I'm just curious if there's something like that i'm glad you asked because i was answering the question very precisely based on the parameters but you're right you could totally use like a, a safe chemistry i wouldn't use microbutanil should probably start with that um mostly because microbutanil although this isn't what you were saying jack it's a fungicide so it's not going to affect our particular problem um but yeah you could use something like a pyrethrin product would just you know annihilate these guys in my experience as well and it, like i've said in other um, podcasts and here too you know it's really it's very fortunate because it will rapidly decay and and it's it stops being what it is in the presence of light uh so really it's a pretty safe chemistry to use it's from chrysanthemums a lot of people are familiar with pyrethrin i don't mean pyrethroids and i definitely don't mean permethrin i mean pyrethrin the wording does matter the terminology matters um Maybe you could and, just type uh, the proper one in the chat too after we have this little talk so that the people who uh, watch back can go. Because sometimes I hear something and I try and spell it myself on Google and I end up down the wrong uh, rabbit hole, so to speak. So um, it's definitely just, tough yeah. for some people. Pyrethrin. There it is. Um, so yeah, absolutely. So yeah, you could. I was thinking about it as I was saying this. So maybe you were on my wavelength there, Jack. But yeah, there, you, there are other things that you could totally grasp an azadiractin or a neem product as well. You know, that kind of a thing. Definitely. Good considerations. And it's just something that um, I thought of because that, that's like the most notable one. I feel like a lot of people have that Eagle 20 kind of history ingrained in them because it was unfortunately sprayed by a lot of the uh, people before we knew any better on cannabis. And um, that's really nasty stuff. So I'm glad that we do know better now and we can advocate against that and uh, advocate for better options that are out there, uh, cleaner options and still very effective ones. And so we, we can save a lot of people headaches and potentially poisoning themselves. So with that said, we nerd DWC, another longtime listener and um, past member of the show asks, I hear of precision stress quote techniques with fertigation. Are there any, and should we do them? I'm going to pass that to Dr. MJ. I thought you were going to take that sort of yourself first. Um, you know, specifically with fertigation, we've talked a lot about the the University of Guelph study about the, the week six dryback, um, and I, I, I don't know if that's exactly what we're talking about in terms of precision stress, but I mean that, that's where my mind goes to when we are sort of selectively stressing the plants in very specific ways to get a, a beneficial result from it. Um, you know, there's some other things that I think growers do that end up stressing the plants in kind of unprecise ways, sometimes it, it, with the intent to sort of stimulate uh, a better harvest. Um, but I think that that's the only one that I would even caution towards in terms of fertigation practices specifically. Um, well, and yeah, they specified with fertigation because there are a lot of like other stress techniques I've seen in people, whether it's plant training or like drilling a, a nail through their stock or some other uh, ice dark water. before, dark before ice water flush. Yeah. Whole, there's a lot of different stresses so that the, people the try to implement. flush itself is, I guess, the other place that I would go to in thinking about that, that, you know, to the extent that the flush 
when I'm talking about the flush at the end of the grow, right before you harvest your plants, if you do that sort of thing, to the extent that that benefits the plants, it's not because it's getting rid of nutrients that the plants have already absorbed. I mean, we know that that doesn't happen. So it, it, it may be stressful for the plants. And, you know, a lot of growers really swear that it, it has a notable impact when they do it and when they don't do it. I'm tempted to think that that may be a stress response that they're sort of picking up on the plant um, because being flushed is stressful to the plant. And there's other things that growers sort of swear by that last week before harvest, like the ice water thing um, that, you know, if any of those things do bear fruit, as it were, and theoretically, I think that the the mechanism through which they're going to be shown to be beneficial will be by sort of precision stress. But at this point, it's not very precise because we don't know what we're doing. It is totally. Somebody said like bro science to the max. And I think that's a pretty good summary of it. The Guelph study, I will admit, I think was well done. Um, we, I hope that people try and replicate it and then look deeper into it. But I, I've read it several, several times. I've sent the article to people many times. And um, every time I read it, I'm still impressed. I'm like, they did this well. This is how I would do it. And with good scientists, they probably took even more considerations that I wouldn't have controlled for. So I'm really happy that they did it. Um, even with that knowledge, even with the personal experience firsthand, doing it many, many times, late flower, uh, drought stressing, I'm currently late flower. And I'm like, every time my earth box goes dry, I am fighting. Like I'm at the point where I have to drought stress right now or else it's not going to happen before harvest. And because I've been doing everything so properly the rest of the time i'm like i know i need to drought stress it but i still just want to like throw that water in there um so right now is actually the time where i'm not watered last week i said oh i'm gonna drought stress it but i didn't <laughs> i kept watering it so um a well-watered plant will still perform very well so it's not like you absolutely have to do it and every other precision stress technique i've seen uh quoted or paraphrased on the internet has absolutely no evidence there's no guelph study there's even really side by side. They're just like, this is how I've done it. And I've always done it. And I like this way. So you should do it that way because I do it this way. And I know everything because I've been doing it for a hundred years. And uh, you should bow down to me because I'm an 18th generation master grower. So that's like a lot of the explanations that I get from people. Obviously, I'm being facetious and exaggerating right, right there. But um, yeah, I, I hear no, that I kind of you. talk. And, and I group those yeah. things into two general categories, things that are almost certainly going to damage your harvest or your your yield potential. Um or, or things that probably aren't going to have much of an impact on anything at all. Um, there's not much of that stuff that I, I, I actually think does produce sort of notable Im improvements in the plants. I think the main thing all growers should focus on is keeping your plants happy and healthy and sort of well provided with everything that they need and the right doses and temperatures and all of that um which that i also take yeah i i have the say i have the approach that i don't like to really induce stress because there's things that you can because like i i think that to maximize the genetic potential in my mind what i thinking i'm thinking of is the plant's ability to upregulate its genetic expressions if it's going through a lot of um stress it has to use energy to to deal with that stress so you can turn on certain like stress sequences using like biology for instance without necessarily having to cause uh a physical like any type of physiological 
damage or any type of actual physiological stress to the plant to where it will will inherently react, but it's reacting in a positive manner where it's upregulating a system instead of downregulating the system. That's a great point. I want to give a second to welcome in who just joined us, the American one. Hello, Jack, panel, everyone in chat. I am the American one uh, on YouTube and the American one underscore with underscore Keens on the IG. Uh, I'm sorry I'm late and I'm happy to be here. I hope everyone had a great week and uh, getting ready for another one. We're happy to have you. We just got a question about precision stress related to fertigation. And we talked about that for a while, but now we're talking about kind of the other stresses. And one thing that was brought up was kind of the flush and how that might be a stress event. And I'm sort of wondering if the flush, if it is a stress, a lot of people really, really, I know that there's bro science, but there's like a lot of people who really believe in that one. And I actually would say I probably fall in that camp. Like, um, I don't know if it's a stress related thing or, or what, maybe I think a lot of people are overfeeding the entire time. So getting it down to like a more proper level might just be beneficial for the plant. But I'm also wondering if the, that, if we're going to call it a stress, the flush causes some sort of decay of an undesirable plant molecule or something like chlorophyll that's harsher to smoke. Um, like putting the plant through that stress maybe makes it do something to itself that I you mean, like how, if you, like, if you're hunting, like the meat can go very sour if you uh if it's like you know in a, in a certain kind of state before you execute it that was a gruel that's a ghoulish way to put it i didn't mean like that but you know what but no that does happen that's why they try to make yeah. cattle before they meat. get slaughtered <clears throat> not experience a lot of like fear they want to make it as clean and, and whatever because the stress hormones the stress hormones produced by an animal will cause that 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 all that that hormone it it, it yeah works itself into the actual muscle it's a because it's a it's a signaling response. So if I had it's like I gotta get out of here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. I will say this: I don't think it's actually how plants work. Um, you know, uh, you know how I like to talk. Well, with regards to with regards to the stress, like because plants rely on that signaling system, there is no situation where they're not constantly managing growth and defense. Right? And there is a trade off, like I always talk about. So if you're inducing a stress response, you're telling the plant that it needs to stop doing as much of this kind of certain kinds of growth. I'm very much simplifying it, right? Because there's different kinds of signals, different kinds of stimuli. But basically, you can't grow thick and stout and simultaneously, you know, quick and long. Right. And like Brandon said, there's only so much energy and the energy is going to have to be reallocated to either repairing damage, fighting off the pest or uh, stressor, whether, whether it's drought or otherwise, the plant's going to have to dedicate energy to mitigating that stress versus just growing and, you know, respiring and doing all the other things that it wants to do. So I think uh, as, as little think as often. Growers, yeah, we're not trying to violate the laws of physics necessarily. I think what, what growers are trying to do is just basically send the signal to the plant on the last few days, even like, okay, listen, plant, at this point, put all your energy into, you know, cannabinoids and that's it, right? Like, don't worry about anything else, like, and trying to like, just like poke it with the right stick so that you yeah. get that kind of response from it. But yeah, you're gonna you're going to compromise other things potentially. And like with the flush particularly, like I think if you do, regardless of media, if you do a flush long enough that you're actually sort of lowering your plant's ability to, to complete photosynthesis, like it, it's starved of nutrients, then I think you're going to have an adverse effect on your overall harvest size. 
Um, so if you flush for like a couple of weeks or even a week, I, I think that you could seriously deprive your plant and end up with a smaller and probably a measurably smaller if we did a good controlled yeah. experiment on that. Um, I, I, and you know what? I feel like most of the things that we're looking for uh, when it comes to the benefits of the plant or like what when we're talking about maximizing things, we're usually talking about maximizing the cannabinoid and terpene profiles and also maximizing the yields. And I, and I think that all of those can really be addressed through proper nutrition, because if we're looking at like over fertilization of nitrogen, for instance, that has a huge impact on cannabinoid and terpene production. So you'll get lower, a lower quality product. If you've overfed nitrogen through your your whole cycle for instance or you have yield suffer Mm -hmm. if you Mm -hmm. haven't given it enough potassium so a lot of the things are are simply you know things like calcium to nitrogen ratios like how the plant's gonna actually grow and 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 uh you know the availability of those nutrients yeah like it's just gonna take those up and it's gonna use those and so and it sounds like it's like uh you know, it's kind of, it's a semi-automatic system. There's those triggers and stimuli, but like, yeah, like those get into the system and then they get manipulated by that system and then they get used in various ways. Right. So definitely I agree with that. And I also don't want to diminish the point that Brandon made earlier, which is that, you know, you can stimulate, or at least, you know, don't let me put words to your mouth, but I think what you're trying to say is, or one thing that you were mentioning was that, you know, you're trying to have these stress response without like the damage, obviously, without actually damaging the plant um, uh, in, you know, like physically, right? Like instead of having to have the herbivory happen, you can have a stimulus that affects that, you know? So that makes sense. Oh, I see Spartan is the host now. So does that mean that Jack is not here anymore? It does. I'm having a Jack. I get a host. He desynced. Terrible idea. Oh no. Yeah, you got automatically promoted. <laughs> Zoom looked around the room uh, and said, "Who should be host now that Jack's not here?" And like, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I think one of the signal. examples that you could say instead of having something actually physically chewing you on your plant, but then you know using something like chitin or chitinase as a biostimulant yeah. that would actually uh, elicit the same genetic right. uh, reaction exactly, without yeah. actually having the plant to expend that additional energy exactly right and like although you will still get a reactionary trade-off that might affect growth and things like that you know you're not going to have leaves bitten off right and so yeah no i totally agree with that and and um it's kind of like a the concept of a dirty drug right so like you know some medications will affect multiple things and other medications will affect in a more precise or narrow way and i don't think that's always like for certain stimuli, I'm certainly not the be all end all of this knowledge. I don't think we really have all that information, particularly for cannabis. But, you know, it's one of those things where some stimuli that we apply might be better than others. And I think that is kind of at a certain point, I think that's where it's kind of coming and boiling down to is like, you know, you could you could have a certain effect happen in a bunch of different ways, but you might prefer one that's more precise and you might prefer one where maybe you affect three things at once or something like that. Oh, Jack is the host now. He's back. Good. The thing with flushing, uh, I always have said, is it's, it kind of depends on what you're doing and it depends on your own grow. I always recommend growers that I talk to to do your own thing. I know guys that grow in like ocean forests, fox farms, different soils like that, and they use bottled nutrients. And uh, I've done, I did that for years. And I'll tell you that 
I've done many bro science, whatever you want to call it, side by sides, where I had one light, exact same clones, one light, exact same clones, and I flushed one for two weeks with water only at the end, and another one, and the weed tasted not better, considerably better. So I recommend most people to do their own research and uh, find what works for them. Is there a yeah. yield difference? What's what's that? Is there a notable yield difference between the two lights? You know, not really. And uh, I, when I, I've had that, I've done it. So I've done it a lot of times. So, it, you know, it can go back and forth. Like, you know, this plant's closer to the AC, this plant's not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a lot so, of variables, exactly. There's variables in it, but uh, no, I, 99% of the and, time. And you were growing in, in a peat-based media using liquid news. Yep. Yeah. See, I'm, yeah. I'm still tempted to say that the only way I could imagine that benefiting the plants is through stress. Um, and for two weeks seems like a long time to be stressing the plants at the end. But I'm telling you that the weed 99% I hear you. of the time with, tastes I'm better. With, I'm with Noah too, man. When I, I, believe, salt, I, I always flush. Do you guys ever see weed spark? It's Have you ever better. seen that when you're smoking a joint? It's sparking. And shit? I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen a few times, a select what few is times. That? To the extent what is that you have that much phosphorus embedded in sort of the flowers of your plant, you're not going to get rid of it by feeding it plain water for the rest of your life. You could feed it's that true. plain water. And, and, uh, and Dr. Coco, not getting I, out I agree with that, but I was, just, I was just asking more on like a, a related, right. because that's the opposite end of the spectrum. One, you're giving too much yeah. and obviously doing yeah. a lot of things right. wrong. But, but we've, we've all come across that harsh black coal that you could smoke as hard as you want and it's not going to turn white. And it is so hard and it makes you fucking want to cough up a lung and then we've also had that really light fluffy powdery ash that is like nice and pleasant to smoke and uh i don't i, I don't think the ash color necessarily percentage yo no See, listen is, to me hold on my... let me talk a second okay okay i okay. know for a fact because i've been there i've seen i've done it so if you over fertilize a cannabis plant with salt nutrient it will get that black charcoal freaking garbage man i've sure i know it i know it so I think might, you're um, not going to get rid of that with flushing. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe giving, it would be no, a little bit less now. bad is the, the, the people. You're giving your plants. If you're, if you're flushing for two weeks, you're giving your plants like 20% less fertilizer. And at the end of the cycle, when the buds are being formed, it's, it's to me. Well, it's less for hey. input, right? <laughs> yeah. 20%. Yeah, listen, <laughs> if there's, listen to me, hold on. Cause the, the nutrients that I was using, um, unbeknownst to me wanted me to flush every two weeks or whatever give it a, a water rinse through those so, aren't good nutrients right so 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 that's one thing second thing um uh yeah i don't know people say that the water content in the bud will stop it from growing to white ash dude you got a torch on the thing and it still isn't turned to white ash you're definitely burning all the moisture out of it what do you mean if there's moisture in it it won't go to white ash I think that sometimes Explain people that smoke me, stuff that's a little bit. Point. Yeah. So yeah I have actually two cases there. There's I've the damp bud so. versus the dry bud, and then there's also the over-fertilized bud versus the properly Listen, fertilized bud. Yeah. I know so, over-fertilized makes it black charcoal, and it doesn't burn. That's not even the, the real point here about flushing. Now <laughs> is that flushing is not going to fix that. It's not going to remove right. those phosphates or those nitrates or the, you know out of the flowers once they've already been deposited there. It's just not. Right. You know, so, why is, so but why is comes that out I, of I the think, plant when we feed it plain yeah, water? It's like I nothing's coming out of the plant. So, so I think there's a fundamental point here. Fertilize. 
But let me ask you this: If how about with the flush in between? Like, so the salt doesn't build up. It's, that's to break lockouts. No, that's really to break lockouts because they have an unbalanced mix. Most of the time, the manufacturer tells you to flush every week or every couple of weeks. It's because uh, things are becoming so unstable in that in that what, sort of. What happens that. is oftentimes in lower pHs that phosphorus when it's liberated into the phosphate anion it'll attach to things like iron, aluminum, manganese, and then in higher pHs, it'll actually bond and turn into uh, calcium phosphate. And so what happens is neither of those are available and they require biological cycling to, to liberate to liberate those uh, yeah. two different cation and anions from each other. And so they just stay in solution and they cause your EC to go up. So they, they have a, an electrical charge, but they're unavailable. So that's the stress factor that you would be, you'd be seeing in these types of systems. Well, so yeah, that's what the thing I don't understand the people say it's due because it's uh, the blood wasn't dry. Like when you hit it with that. Torch, yeah. I don't know. About that. I, I actually, I actually have some insight on this topic and, there's even a research paper. It's from 1923. What happens wow. is, um, what happens is, plants will actually take up uh, carbonate, which is an anion, um, and they do this because they need to balance their sap charge. So, if you're looking at the major things that the plant is taking up, the major elements, they have a positive charge associated with them: calcium, magnesium, potassium. Um, and so, what happens is, the plant will use things like silica. It'll use uh, carbonate to balance out that internal charge. And so if you have something that's really unbalanced, you don't have enough, they're going to take up more and more of that carbonate. Now that carbonate actually stays in the plant material itself. And so they do, they did a bunch of ash tests in this research paper from 1923, <laughs> and they're looking at different fertilizers and the concentrations of carbonate that the plant takes up under different regimens. And they see that with higher imbalances of those minerals, then they'll take up more com uh, car uh, carbonate, which is carbon compound. And obviously carbon is black when it's, you know. This is tobacco? Uh, no, this was, uh, this was done on air. Uh, I think it was done on Aridopsis, if I'm not mistaken, but it's a really old paper, you know, when I was right. looking into, uh, you know, plant root take, uh, uptake of different carbon compounds. And that's one of the things I had come across. And it got me thinking because they're actually doing ash tests in these research studies. And so one of the things that really just stuck out was you could be having uh, this, this carbonate uptake because things aren't so balanced out. Maybe you don't have the proper nutrition or maybe like with the because of the nutrition that you're using. Yeah. And then that causes that. And also those, those, um, elements in abundance to access nitrates excess uh sulfates and some other there was a bunch of some other stuff uh i'll have to dig out that thing i've got it at my office in my i'll just say uh, related to cannabis i mean specifically we know there's nutrient lines that only give you so much if you get like the av bottle they want you to buy the rest of it so they're not giving you a full solution and then they're also recommending you give way too much fertilizer well they can't they can't give you a full solution and the reason is is because these chemicals that they use they don't actually play well together. So they can't put the same thing in the same bottle. So if you were to look at something like uh, calcium nitrate, right? 
you're not going to put calcium nitrate with DAP with monoammonium phosphate, right? Because what happens is that, that again, that, that phosphate, once it's liberated, it bonds to the calcium ion. And so there's those types of interactions will always happen because none of those elements are chelated. Like they're not able to like stay at separate molecules and they're so highly reactive. That's why you have so many different bottles. It's not because they couldn't put it. It's they can't physically put all those things in the same bottle because the, the reactions that'll happen. That's Some what lines that's are worse than others. I'll, I'll throw out advanced yeah. nutrients. It's just shitty for having like 37 bottles in their line and they break it down overly so that you have to buy multiple things when they could shrink down several of them into they also thing. try to convince you you need to buy a bunch of stuff that you don't need to buy. I mean, yes. Let's just be honest about that side of it. Too. Just the upselling, right? Yeah. Yeah. There? I mean, inventing products so that people can have something else to buy. I mean, and honestly, really- if you're looking at advance and you and I'll throw my two cents in because I'm not a, I'm not a fan at all. Um, most of it's just water. If you look at their base, yeah. you'll have something like diammonium phosphate, magnesium sulfate and potassium sulfate. You can buy all of that stuff. DAP is probably like $15 for a 50 pound bag. And the amount that they have in there is probably a teaspoon, right? And of, of each of those elements, Epsom salts, even cheaper than that. Potassium uh, sulfate's a little more expensive, but it's not that expensive at all as a base ingredient. And so you're, you're like the amount of profit as a percentage that they're making off of you is probably somewhere in like the it's it's beyond that it's tens yeah, it of is, thousands of probably. percent dude it's 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 pharmaceutical type it, maybe not all the way up to pharmaceuticals but it's it's huge dude it's it's huge i'm telling you well when the biggest ingredient is dihydrogen monoxide it's like yeah i mean obviously i totally agree with that point and i also wanted to just I, first of all we have a bunch of questions we should get through not yeah to i was about to say that. i'm gonna jump to that <laughs> i just want to say this I just want to, I just want to go back to what we were saying with the phosphorus and everything. Cause I think, you know, like, it's just really important to know that like some of these, let's just go back. Some of these nutrients, they're mobile. Some of these nutrients, they're not mobile. And I think like, that was the point I was trying to, to sort of get out of uh, Dr. Coco. Cause I think that was like the major, like you can't really you argue flush all you want. That. It's not going anywhere. Yeah. Exactly. You can't really do anything with that. So uh, without further ado, let's get it's also the, the mobile nutrients. They'll move them around when they're called on someplace yeah. else. Yeah. They're not going to move them around because like, Oh, I'm getting flushed. Here, it's More like the water. garbage day. Yeah. Here's some garbage I can throw out. I mean, that's <laughs> not how this shit works. <laughs> that's it, not how, what, how do you think that works what, in nature? <laughs> what makes it even more, what makes it even more complex is that there's three different ways that nutrients are uptaken by plants and you know they're they're like like phosphorus for instance that is only pretty much taken up through diffusion it's not taken up through root inception or mass flow you know so it's like you have to think about things like that when you're when you're looking at these elements as well we're not just looking at the availability the formula in but also the way they're taken up if you look at something like copper i think copper is pretty much only available through root inception, which means that the plant has to basically mine it. Good points. But Brandon, we have a question. I think this would go pretty specifically to you. Intuitive Wit says at Cheap Home Grow, what is the kill rate for Kiaha on mites and aphids? Ooh, I have okay. a paper for that. Okay. So I, I've Brandon never, first. I've never uh, claimed or used any of the product that I have as a, uh, insect pest management or for like a fungal suppression. Although I know that there's 
been research on that been done. I, I use the Kiaha that I have that's cold pressed. It has more saponins. It has more bioactive co compounds in the dry stuff, but I really just use it for a surfactant. It's a surfactant that has that benefit. And what that does is it just helps with even movement of water through that. And it also helps with the diffusion of nutrients into the water a lot easier too, since the surface tension of that water is far less. Thank you, Brandon. And uh, Matthew, did you have a paper on that one? Yes, sir. Let me uh, share the screen. Cool stuff. Well, this is great. Thank Hopefully you. that people can see this and they can get the, the Kiaha for insect pest management and for all the other wonderful uh, things that it has with it. I know soap are um, pretty good for IPM as well and they're a sap, saponin or saponin effect. Yeah. Can you uh, enable it? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Typically, I, I think it might even be because I got dropped. Okay. Multiple participants can share simultaneously. I think you should be able to share the screen now. Oh, because okay. the update jack always puts everything to default. Oh, Real that, quick, that is what it last... is. They updated it and all my settings yeah. went back to the default. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, that's what happened. Real quick on the last subject, uh, Spartan, if you were using a a peat based soil and you were using a 100% organic bottled nutrient in that scenario would you think that you would flush the last week or two for flavor for flavor I wouldn't um, I don't know if you'd want to call it a flush but I wouldn't for, I wouldn't feed right exactly flush rinse water only any of yeah yeah I, I, I would I would I would and so anybody who's listening that's my personal view I know other people on the panel have their own view, but oh, I had yeah. to throw it out there. I had to throw yeah, it out there. You, you don't want to fertilize at the end of a harvest. Yeah, I mean, that's not wanna... done in, in any type of agriculture. People are, are applying for starter fertilizers and then getting it through its cycle and then letting it kind of senesce and let the, that, those net levels naturally, you know, degrade. When well, you add bio-nutes, there's a lot of nutrient in that media, even like uh even rockwell i think holds quite a bit when they do the ppm tests at, when they're flushing it through there's a lot of stuff in there at the end so i don't think it's as bad as a lot of people say i think uh, we'll learn more in the future but i, I don't want to drag the flush topic on because right. we've talked about it many many times in the past and i think we all have pretty strong yeah, sorry, opinions but not a lot of uh, but I'm with Bella, I, think I think we, we all flush at the end you no, should kids, flush. So. yeah yeah i don't flush but i i use water only. yeah okay that's what i do I too yeah, but flush flush this topic. Topic. I never flush anything because I'm flushing, my, flushing this topic. Yeah, let's talk about the uh, kill rate of the Kiaha because that was the question at hand. So, so I actually didn't look through this paper. So I, I we're gonna learn together here. Um, it says triterpene saponins of Quihila, Sapon saponaria, Kiaha. Kiaha saponaria show strong aphidicidal, so aphid killing and deterrent activity against the P aphid. A siphon pisum. I'm going to go to the results part of the abstract. That 10 times fast. I know, seriously. So they have a background here, but I'm not going to get into that. I'm just going to hear the results and conclusion. It says here that when aphids were exposed to supplemented artificial diet for three days, a strong aphidicidal activity was recorded for three of the four saponins with an LC50, which means lethal concentration 50, so 50% death, about 0.55 mg per milliliter for saponaria saponins. Um, 0.62 mg per milliliter for ASIN and 0.45 milligrams per milliliter for 
digitonin. The I don't know what LT50 is off the top of my head. Do you, Dr. Coco? So you can, uh, oh, sorry. Um, I'd imagine lethal it's something. Okay. Lethal, lethal something. something yeah. Lethal something values range between one and four days, depending on the dose. For diosgenin, only low toxicity, about 14%, was scored for concentrations up to five mg per milliliter. In choice experiments with treated diet, a deterrence index of 0.97, which we can go and see a graph about, was scored for saponarius opponents at one mg per milliliter. In contrast, direct contact showed no repellent effect. I'm going to say that again. Direct contact showed no repellent effect. Spraying of faba beans, faba bean plants with uh, Q saponaria saponins resulted in a lethal concentration of 50% dead of 8.2 mg per milliliter. Finally, histological, so tissue analysis in aphids fed with Pahila saponaria saponins demonstrated strong aberrations of the aphid gut epithelium and exposure of midgut cell lines to uh, saponaria saponins in vitro confirmed their cytotoxic or cell toxic effect. So the conclusion is the present insect experiment provides strong evidence that saponins, as tested here with the triterpene saponins, can be useful as natural aphicides and deterrents. Furthermore, the insect midgut epithelium is suggested to be a primary target of saponin activity. So there you go. Ooh. The answer to your question is yes. Good I think they want LT to know the ratio. So if time. we're looking, lethal we're time. looking okay. at, at those ratios, what's the what'll be the conversion? Uh, for what? What is it? Oh, 0.55 milligrams, per, milligrams per, per liter. Milliliter. So you could just figure out, you know, the conversion of that to gallon if you're in the US. Yep. Yeah. And uh, we have a little graph here. This is a log graph. So mortality goes up as concentration goes up. That makes sense. Sweet. <laughs> I'm being facetious here, but uh, here, yeah. look at I have. I actually have some Kiaha. I'm gonna try that because I've never actually used it. I do. I mean, I use it as a surfactant, but I haven't tried it as a like standalone pesticide or as a deterrent. And I have like. Matthew, this... have we only seen this against aphids? Have we seen any of this research against any other insect? The question originally was mites and aphids. Um, right. I would expect it to have a similar effect because the physiology might be similar enough. There are also, but the, the, the paper makes a good point that there's all kinds of saponins that are associated with this plant. So, you know, like it really depends on which ones you're talking about. Kind of like with, um, with neem, right? There's azadiractin and there's a bunch of other stuff. And so those aren't really synonymous, but yeah, it's kind of the same sort of thing. And, and yeah, I would expect it to have bad effect if it's attacking the gut lining well that that can be a pretty conserved system not not totally the same in all insects but certainly that's going to ruin their day um also i always we like doing this that. yeah the saponins like these saponins they can there is an aquaculture toxicity to to be discussed i suppose um you know i think whenever this topic comes up i mention it so i'll, I'll mention it here that's it's not good for fish and it's certainly not good for a lot of aquatic arthropods that are important for the ecosystem. And uh, yeah, this, this particular question comes on the heels of me reading a research report that talked about, again, like we have done for the last two, three, four decades that the insect mass on earth, it's going down. Diversity is going down. It's not great. So many systems rely on insects for food, for cycling nutrients, for all kinds of stuff. Even the ones that eat the plants, 
um, is this yeah. as a result of broad use of pesticides across all ag? There are several things. I think the biggest, the I think I remember the biggest factors being one of the biggest ones is of course, um, you know, various aspects of modern agriculture. There's pesticide use, um, specifically pesticides that are, you know, um, you know, more broad spectrum and they have a longer residual time and that sort of a thing. You know, the laws of the USA are not the laws of other parts of the world. And they have different sort of rules and regulations. And even if they do have those rules and regulations, they don't necessarily have the, uh, you know, the capability of, of, uh, of um, controlling that, I suppose, if you want to put it that way. The other thing is that um, deforestation is a huge problem and just destroying the natural environments that these yeah. organisms yeah, live in. It doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't matter how much pesticide we don't use if uh, they have nowhere to be. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's such a large proportion of like the net primary product of the planet, which is like all the energy that plants are able to harness from the, the solar flow of energy every day. Like so much of that now is, is agriculture. Um, it used to be forests and wetlands and prairies and all sorts of things. And there's, it's basically agriculture now. And, and that's just a few crops under pretty heavy insect management. So um, yeah, it's a scary world we're living in. It makes me absolutely sardonic. And um, I'm, I hope we, I hope we survive it um, as a species, study, as a community. Yeah, oh yeah, no, you first. The other thing That's this study sort of reminds me of is the history of SM90. Um, so SM90 used to be a really popular grow product um, amongst cannabis growers, both as a, a foliar spray and as a, a root drench application. It's a surfactant. Um, and they got in trouble, and it's, it has happened. <laughs> they got in trouble for selling it uh, or for advertising its insecticidal um, properties. And since it wasn't labeled as a pesticide and hadn't gone through pesticide testing, um, they were marketing its insecticidal properties. And that's what led to the product getting pulled from the market in 2019, I believe. Um, so it's like the same sort of history, like, oh, look, these products that we use because they're excellent surfactants also turns out have insecticidal properties towards sort of insect insects that we're not interested in. And so we're going to find a new sort of market for our product that way. But you got to make sure that if you're, and this is just legal BS, frankly, because the product didn't change, but um, pesticides are much more heavily regulated than other agricultural inputs. So you can sell something as a surfactant pretty easily. If you start selling it as a pesticide, you have to do much more rigorous testing. Yeah. And even the paper mentions, um, I highlighted it for those who were, who are viewing this uh, video, but yeah, I highlighted that this paper, uh, mentions that, you know, despite the results that they had, you know, it's not totally conclusive. In fact, in some ways, we don't even know all of the different ways that it has this harmful effect. And, um, you know, it bothers me quite a bit that people have this sort of naturalistic fetish where in, where in which they're like, oh, uh, man-made synthesized pesticide where we don't know all the effects, that is bad and evil. 
uh, natural product that we're going to be using a natural derivative. We still don't know all the total effects. No problem. Right. Uh, <laughs> I think that's a little yeah, also, critical. Uh -huh. So, so. Well, we've got a question from, go ahead. I'll say one last thing, Matthew, maybe I misunderstood it, but an important thing that I got from that was, was spraying it on the insect itself wouldn't do a damn thing. You would have to actually ingest it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I read. I, I heard. I heard. I thought I heard that too. It said, uh, "Direct contact is not the killer. They have to eat it to make it. Yeah. It has to go into the digestive tract, and it essentially, like, uh, it seems almost like it like suffocates them or something, or just ruins their uh, it, insides." Which is, yeah, it's, it, their epithelium, their gut lining. Um, it gives them so a real bad case of diverticulitis, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, so well, this is actually noteworthy because aphids and also mites, spider mites, for example. They, um, well, aphids feed on phloem. Actually, we have a question about phloem and xylem. I was just about to introduce that one. Yeah, so um, it this, together. Im this implies that the aphids are somehow reaching it uh, in the phloem, which would also imply that the supponents are somehow getting into the phloem or maybe somewhere along that line. So I don't really know. You know, I didn't read the whole paper, so I don't really want to comment too much. But um, that's interesting. That's an interesting point to make. And yeah, so... You want me to answer that question, phloem and xylem? Yeah, so you can go ahead and introduce, uh, I just want to shout out Smot Poker, who asked the question about xylem and phloem, a uh, long-time listener and also a uh, past uh, guest panelist on the show. So cheers, Smot Poker and Crispy Wannabe. I know you're out there listening. And uh, should we ask the, get the whole question? Yeah, no, I thought you wanted to introduce it, so I, I was just going to let you Oh, read. sorry, sorry, sorry. Let me find it. Oh, I can read um, it, and then you can take it. A phloem, xylem, and does it intertwine with active-passive transport? Uh, so the difference between phloem and xylem, and anyone who knows better than I is free to say so, but basically phloem, um, phloem is like the circulate, well, they're both like the, the circulatory system of the plant, right? And so water, xylem is the water channels. I often say the xylem water channels just to make sure people realize that. And it's not very nutritionally dense. Um, it's mostly water and some trace minerals and anything else anyone wants to mention. But phloem is like, it's up to what? So an uptake, for, yeah. For growers, it, for yeah, the, the xylem is like from the roots up to the plant. Um, so water uptake, nutrient uptake, um, things traveling up to the the plant and the cytophotosynthesis, and and then uh, it I mostly think, goes one direction. I, I agree that it's not very nutritious, but I just worry that when we say that, because the phloem is what has really the nutrients, it's the, as the photosynthate, it has all the carbohydrates and everything else that the plant sort of produces and that it's going down. So like if what you think of as like sap or something like the good stuff in the plant that it's distributed. I was referring to xylem, but yes, exactly. Z I no, was it's talking the phloem. About Right. Yeah, but right. I was talking that's about the silence. that's the good stuff. But you see, growers often when you say that it doesn't have any nutrition, I'm just talking about that... xylem. Yes. I was talking about xylem, not phloem. Yes, I know. And you say that it doesn't have any nutrition, but that the nutrients, the growers themselves get confused about that. The nutrients like the, the NPK that we're providing to the plants and the roots are uptaken. So uh, semantically, you're you're spot on. I'm just worried about that confusion, Matthew, if you if that makes sense now. Yeah, definitely. So the phloem is where all the good stuff goes from the source to the sink, like you're saying, fruits and shoes or roots, I should say. And yeah, I don't think I have much more to say about that. But yeah, like a lot of insects that focus on phloem, your aphids and those sorts of things, 
they're mostly feeding on the flow and maybe a little teensy bit on the xylem if they need to dilute the, the you know and most of it's sugar and i and if anyone wants to argue with that they can check out my videos on bricks and insect digestion apparently i have a i have a uh reputation for this but yeah you could take you check that stuff out on my youtube channel because 95% plus of it is those photosynthates and and that's usually sucrose and yeah that's all i have to say about that um, a specific question and follow up was Wiener dwc says this is in reference to clone done upside down is that reversible so like does the xylem and phloem can it flow both directions and i'm assuming because we saw that that uh, clone did root um i think it was seed person one or somebody else or maybe it was i can't remember who did the upside down clone but um it's got roots at least one of them the one that was in the johnny shout out to johnny Seed, the sand tech uh that cloning technique where they just go straight into sand they got roots on that one the fastest so and in my past experience i've heard about the creeper plants that kind of have those long legs that go across the ground and even on top of the earth they'll start growing roots out of the sides if they're close enough to a damp soil so um I don't know if that answers about xylem or phloem, but it, it definitely makes sense to me that a plant can root if the lower branches or even a, a cut is taken, flipped upside down and stuck into dirt. The plant is just, when it's put into dirt, it's like, hey, it's time to root. <laughs> and yeah, that's uh, like the environment it wants from, to root in. Your layering comes from and all that. Same kind of idea. Yeah, you're replicating that environment, even though it's not in the soil, you're wrapping it with soil or a rep, like rapid ride cube or whatever it is that's a really cool technique i haven't done it i really want to try it because it looks so cool and convenient but i haven't actually uh, implemented that one yet myself so keystone cops asks zenthanol i'm going to root new mother plants soon but wondering about best practices in the meantime uh generally speaking i like to make sort of a bio barrier i've talked about it in the podcast in the past so basically you know, kind of like we talked about in the, in the beginning, you don't have to do this, but like, like Jack does, you know, you can go one of two directions. You can try to be mostly sterile, but then you really got, then all of that responsibility is on you and that can work out well for some people, or you like do some sterilization to get rid of any nasties or baddies that might be there, microbially speaking, and then, you know, inundate with, um, various microbes that will have some sort of symbiotic relationship with the plant. Maybe they help the plant. Um, maybe they, you know, feed it with some plant hormone analogs, you know, that make it grow in a certain way. Maybe like, like gibberellic acid, like we mentioned earlier, other kinds of plant hormones, certainly not the only one. Uh, perhaps it helps mine for nutrients. Perhaps it creates a hard tig net like certain mycorrhizae do and has a physical, but also um, you know, other sorts of barriers and buffers that keep the plant from, um, you know, uh, uh, having drought stress in the medium or being attacked directly, that kind of a thing. So that's sort of my suggestion. Anybody else have uh, any thoughts on that question before we go on? Because we do have a few more and uh, getting low on time. We've got about half an hour left in the show. So with no... Uh objections there i think we can keep going 710 dp0 says why does a plant know to stop eating in a bed or with organics but when salts what does it not know it's done um the wording on the last one was a little interesting i'll just say from the organic perspective the difference is the way that new nutrients are being uptaken versus like a chelated nutrient where it's immediately available to the plant when you pour it in with the water um when there's an organic soil 
the plant is typically using exudates to send signals into the soil. And those exudates say, I need, you know, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, whatever it is. And the microbes work with the plant. It's, it's sort of like a symbiosis that's happening. And the plant goes and uh, those exudates sort of help send signals in the soil to what needs to be broken down and made available for the plant. And so it's never really ideally going to ask for more than it needs. Um, but that being said, I, I think you should still try and make an ideal soil mix because if you just throw like way too much of one particular nutrient in there then um, you want to have balance even in organics but i'll pass it over to dr mj and, and let him explain a little bit more about the um, why the immediate availability is there with using something like a synthetic nutrient yeah i was just gonna say that, i mean the difference is you know in the organic style like you're describing the plant has to ask for it and sort of work for it what it needs um, and that's one of the sort of energy advantages of hydroponic growing is that we're, we're giving the plants very easy to absorb nutrients, but, um, they will kind of get to some extent what we give them. That's not always true. And there's other things that, that sort of start to go bad when we just indiscriminately give them nutrients, right? Like, it's not just that they're absorbing too many nutrients. It may be that the EC is too high. They're struggling to get water. They're getting, you know, uptake issues at different ECs. Like calcium is really hard for plants to, to uptake if the, the water is too salty. Um, so things like that can start to, to come undone and, and come out of balance. But um, yeah, the biggest difference is we're making it, we're like, almost just laying it out on a buffet to the the plant um you know instead of it having to go and and work for for each meal it gets or whatever each dose of nutrients it gets it's just sort of like able to feast in a hydroponic setup anybody else have any thoughts on that question or do we want to uh move on from there well i was just going to say it's like um I don't know if this is the right word, osmosis. When the water is full of nutrients and the plant takes up the water, that's where the nutrients are in the water. So they're going in, you know what I mean? Isn't that the way it's working? There's like three ways, like Brandon was talking about, like the um, nutrient upkeep. But I mean, with the, specifically with water, rich, enriched nutrient water, you know? What happened? Say it again? Just... Just the water, the plant's taking up water and the nutrients are in the water. So it's forcing to take up the nutrients with the no, water. No, absolutely no? not. Okay. That's a really common misconception. Well, the water comes that. across <laughs> primarily through diffusion and, or sorry, through osmosis, which just like the osmosis, like an RO system or whatever, purifies the water. The water that enters the plant uh, through osmosis is pure water. All of the salts are left behind. The salts enter the plant separately through yeah diffusion or, or different transport processes you know brandon's talking about mass flow or inception or just you know active or passive transport um but that's separate than osmosis which is where the vast majority of the water comes through now there has to be water coming through osmosis in order for there to be water in the xylem like matthew was talking about to transport those nutrients that enter to the plant sort of to, to supply the plant with the, the raw materials that it's going to, the vitamins and water basically um, that it's going to use in photosynthesis. Um, but those nutrients come in not 
through osmosis with the water. And I think that that's what, what people assume is like the plant takes its water like a straw. This is one of the reasons we have to measure EC because the plant takes up water often faster than it takes up the nutrients and that leaves sort of more nutrients behind and that causes the water that's left behind to have a higher EC. Um, and that's what we kind of monitor and, and balance in that. It would be a little It's bit a constant easier. fight. I think most people, if they're not really dialed in, they're fighting to not go high on the EC if they're giving synthetic nutrient every single feed because it the plant yeah. likes to take up water. It seems more than it likes to take up the nutrients that are given in certain ratios that might be a little bit higher. If, if it's pro proper and optimal, it seems like they might go in like in yep. doc setup where they're auto watering five times a day and it's given 1.5 every single time. It might come out 1.6 every single time. As long as everything's dialed in, there's not going to be a whole lot of change. The plant likes that consistency. Um, but when it starts to, you give it water once a day and it takes up that water and then a whole bunch of the salts that they haven't broken down are left behind. And then you go in again once a day and that EC just bumps up like, you know, from 1.5 to 1.7 to 2 and 2.2 and just keeps creeping up. And if you're not measuring the outflow each time, um, it can get pretty high, pretty fast. And I always, that's one of the first questions I always ask if I see somebody's plant is suffering, if they're growing in most systems, I'll ask like, have you measured your runoff EC and what was your input? And sometimes they're just like, I'm not measuring at all. Or they'll be like, it's 3.5. And I'm like, oh, I'd try and get it to 1.5. Um, and then they do. And then things tend to start getting a lot happier really fast. So that's uh, yeah. all I got to say about that. But I'm curious if anybody else has any thoughts on that one before we get to what about Bob's question? Sounds like no. So we'll uh, go ahead and I can actually take this one. It's a pretty straightforward one. What about Bob? Does overwatered soil prevent nutrient uptake? Uh, like if you flushed in the meaning, like if you gave a ton of water at one time and you just completely soaked the soil, does that create nutrient lockout? And I would say typically if you're flooding the plant where it has so much water, it's hard to take up actual oxygen. It needs to have like the right oxygen content of the water. So the water has to be the proper temperature. And as long as that's proper, then you might be a little bit better off. But even then, if you're just like going to continue to follow it up, like even never let it dry out. Um, it's not like a rice paddy or something like with cannabis, like it can't just stay wet the entire time in a peat based or soil based medium. So it needs to have some access to water unless you have like the most aerated soil of all time, which is probably not super likely that even with 100% water content in there that it's going to thrive. So long story short, I guess is uh, if you waterlog a soil, it's going to have difficulties taking up not only nutrients, but more specifically, even like water and oxygen, uh, two things that it vitally needs. And so it'll suffer and potentially just die off. Yeah. I agree with all of that. Yeah, it's going to be a bad situation for your roots. They're going to start dying off and you're going to have bad nutrient uptake just because of that, because of the less roots. And if you do, you know, one of the issues with some of these nutrient lines that we were talking about that recommend growers flush all the time, if you don't have good drainage and you have to flush like in peat, that that is going to be, you know, a lot of water without, I mean, just make sure, I, I think the lesson here is almost always like, make sure you have good drainage. Um, and if you're growing in big containers, make sure you have a lot of sort of aeration or draining type material in there. Um, because yeah, like otherwise your water is going to get sort of waterlogged and hypoxic at some point. Most plants I see, like if you go to like Home Depot, Lowe's, any nursery, it's like 
well-draining soil. Like unless you're growing it like a succulent or something that really you want it maybe to hold a little bit of water and you're going to give it a tiny amount of water every now and then. But like most flowers and in plants, like even tomatoes, you want a good well-draining soil because roots like to have access to oxygen. That's one thing that we don't think of. Uh, that's 68 degrees. Like there's a golden window and it's like 68 to like maybe 72, but any higher than that, you're really pushing that oxygen level down to the point where the plant's not going to get as much as it would if you get into the proper temperature range. So keep those roots happy. Bigger the roots, bigger the fruits. People have said that one for a long time. I've never seen a plant with a huge, healthy root ball and giant root system uh, tend to not perform well. So it's like if its roots are happy, the plant is almost always happy as long as uh, you can keep things dialed in. That's And, and the opposite is true, too. If you've got a little scrawny plant that just never did what like its sisters did, like excavate the roots later and they'll be scrawny little underdeveloped roots. I mean, there's the. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a good indication of uh, plant health, I would say, for sure. Uh, the American one asked, uh, somebody asked the American one, do other plants experience the bolt or is that only induced uh, due to abrupt change in light cycle, which indoor cannabis cultivators introduce? I've seen bolting in like lettuce and things like that because of temperature. So I know what happens in there. I saw a hydroponic lettuce facility where they had all the lettuce like floating around on the little like uh, foam basically. <laughs> and uh they got way too hot one time and all their lettuce bolted and it was like way less valuable. It tastes worse. And it was like wilty. Well, hold on. That's because you harvest lettuce in its vegetative state. So you don't want it to flip to its reproductive state. And yeah, the whole mix of, of, you know, flavors will change in, in a crop like lettuce or spinach. If it bolts, if it sends off that flowering stalk. Um, but that's so not that's to say that it's, it's a bad thing that happened to the the lettuce necessarily like if we let lettuce be lettuce and live its lettuce life it's going to eventually want to bolt and send off a flower and and have you know lettuce sex and and create little lettuce offspring i mean that's what, that's what the lettuce wants to do so that bolting process is i just want to say yeah lots and lots of plants go through a really vigorous period of, of growth as they enter reproductive growth. Um, my favorite example are the yucca that, that will just be this like spiny looking bush for now seven, eight years, and then suddenly throw off a 20 foot tall like tree comes growing out of this thing in like two weeks. This like 20 foot tall tree will grow out of this like out of a yucca. Um, if you don't live in a part of the country that that happens to, are those out. planted all around Southern California? Cause I'm pretty sure I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes, like that's a yucca. The they plant them all over the place around here. And you see like 10 of them side by side. And the one that sprouts, it's, it yeah. looks like the ones that are unsprouted. It looks like a little like kind of cone shaped thing. And you could see where it's going to eventually flower. Yeah. Make they this giant to, tower. So they make agave or, or tequila out of the agave. And what they do is they'll tie off the leaves around that center stalk prevent it from bolting because the plant starts storing sugars to like power that the, the bolt that growth and and send off this stock and it's actually those sugars which we make like agave sweetener or tequila or mezcal or whatever the farmers like prevent the plant from bolting so that it, it traps those sugars in as long as possible and then they cut it out um but yeah, that like a lot of different plants and oftentimes our commercial crops, we want to harvest them before they bolt, just like the lettuce, because it, has anybody seen lettuce that bolts? It's got like this stalk out of the middle and these kind of like flowery looking things like that's not what you want on your salad. Um, it doesn't taste good. 
No, and I think it's cool though that lettuce, how we cultivate it for uh, edible consumption or whatever, they get multiple harvests per year. Oftentimes, like the lettuce growers, they go out there, and I've seen this like thing. It's like a soft kind of brush, and this guy just kind of like it almost looks like a lawnmower for his lettuce, and he just like pushes it over and it just harvests his lettuce for him. It does it a couple times a year on like a little quarter acre plot or whatever. You can get a lot of lettuce. It's a uh, pretty productive in a small place, but you really have to like lettuce and doing things like that for salad. So. But a lot of the brassicas do that. Uh, my brassica bed, I'll usually leave one plant of each one. And I'll just let them bolt on purpose and then they'll be seed for next year. I'll collect it and I'll have it for the next year. Especially That's smart. Plants that are doing good. They're acclimated to your area. I mean, they like your soil and it becomes a, almost like a little generational thing that you could pass down to like your kids or uh, just growing in your area and, and know that you're going to have some success because it did well the season before. It's fairly likely it's going to do well in the same climate next year. We actually don't have any other questions. So curious if uh, anything's on your guys' mind. How is how is the garden Spartan growing? I know you do a lot of non-cannabis gardening and other things like that. And you got a few minutes here before you got to get running off the Michigan Bros Grow Show. So I'm just curious about the non-cannabis garden updates. I haven't, yeah, my non-cannabis garden is cold and frozen right now. So we'll wait for that to unthaw before I can do much. But uh, my first- Do you start anything be... indoor? No, I don't do any of that stupid. No, if I'm going to get anything started, I'll go to the, I'll go to the greenhouse and buy one already started. I'm not- for vegetables, man, come on. But I can go pay a dollar. <laughs> I just didn't know because where you're at in Michigan, where I'm at in Ohio, like we would get this weird double, triple winter. So like you'd get snow as early as like Halloween and then it would yeah. snow through like, you know, you might get a white Christmas, but then you might not because it's like, you know, fuck you. We're not going to give you the white Christmas. But then January, it's like 70, 80 degrees. And then in February, it starts snowing through March. Like what is going on? So it's gonna yeah, that happens that happens we don't yeah i don't put anything in the ground that i care about until you know probably middle of may or or june even but yeah um but that's the cool thing is the cold weather plants like the brassicas they do well in, in cool weather you can get away with getting them out there a little earlier but uh those things like i like to just seed straight into the beds and let them just seed right out of the out of the beds I, i'm a pretty laid back vegetable gardener i don't take it extremely seriously and uh if they want to plant themselves that's cool well that's even better that's less work for me so uh i had like four times as many tomato plants as i needed last year because these other ones just sprouted up from last year where tomato must have fallen or whatever and i'm just like fuck it i like those tomatoes from last year i just let them grow and so i just put a tomato cage around them wherever they sprouted and i had way too many tomatoes but you know i just take what nature gives me man and it's fucking fun I learned a new word today there. based on tomatoes. It's called, I'm probably mispronouncing it, V-I-V-I-P-A-R-I, viviparry, I think. Viviparous, viviparry. Yeah. So this this is when a plant has like a tomato, has seeds within it, and they start to sprout within the actual tomato before it's yeah. like even out of the tomato. And yeah. I saw somebody's like, yeah. nature is awesome. And it had like four sprouts coming out of their tomato and they, they wrote viviparry. So I like Googled it. I'm like, oh, cool. I learned a new word today. I knew that tomatoes did that. I've even seen people take cannabis seeds put it into a tomato and germinate it that way so cannabis <laughs> seeds germinating out of an old right plant. on the plant yeah right yeah. on the plant on the plant yep. i've seen I've it seen on that. i've seen on strawberries too they can get viviparous and yeah, uh cool. you know that's what uh with like sharks for example sharks are viviparous oval viviparous i'm forgetting now there's a bunch of different terms for that kind of stuff but yeah fascinating for sure and uh 
but yeah, Spartan Grown, it's about that time where you got to refill the tray, take care of the dogs and do all that good stuff before you head on over to the Michigan Bros Grow Show. Any final thoughts before you give your shout outs? I just uh, I just want to thank everybody for coming and and um, coming together like we've been. Um, it's really great to see us still doing it, man. This was the very first show for me, and and we're still here, and we're pretty much the original cast. So I love that we're still out here, we're still doing it, and uh, I just you know pat everybody on the back for continuing to do it because it's not easy, and there's a lot of shows that have tried and and haven't been able to get the length that we have, and so. Pat your guys selves on the back. I think that's cool. That should be special. Um, and shout out to the chat because it's a lot of the same names in chat too the whole time, following us for the whole journey. So it's cool to see, and it's cool to see it grow. And, you know, I'm not I'm not discounting the new faces either. I'm, I'm I'm happy to see them. So just I'm just leaving with positive vibes. Shout out, to, <laughs> shout out everybody, and uh, you can catch me on the Michigan Bros Grow Show coming up here in 15 minutes. Other than that, much love and keep growing. That was pleasure having you, Spartan. Thank you. Keep growing. Awesome, dude. Always, always uh, thankful to have Spartan on the show and everybody here on this panel. Like he, he said, it's uh, been a long time. I mean, we're coming up over, I, I think we're about to hit our four year, maybe. Um, but we're over four. We're, yeah, today's our four year anniversary. Boom. It's like, damn. Oh, here, yeah. Isn't it? Wait, no, it's, I think it, it literally is. Uh, literally no, wait, this date? I think 208 would be because 52 times for but uh, date wise we're probably past four years because we missed like a few weeks i thought it was the end of february in in 2019 that sounds right i always thought it was longer than that you know it feels longer feels like it's longer but yeah it feels like torture (laughs) it's weird because this past few years has been like a time warp like at the same time it feels like yeah slow it also feels like wow it's already been three years since that thing started or whatever and it's like <laughs> this, being a, this being a four-year-long show yeah and I, I echo spartan sentiments like good on us for staying with it and showing up every week and yeah so i'm happy to be part of it noah the grow i know you also grow non-cannabis things are you uh is it too cold I, I i actually saw snow there you i think sent a thing saying that like the highways got shut down so what's going on in the pacific northwest up there we had more snow than we've had in one day than we've had since World War II, 11 inches. And uh, as that. far as, it, man, it, it was crazy. I, and they're predicting more snow tonight, so we'll see. But uh, I'm thankful my son got in a wreck last night and uh, totaled his car, but uh, he's all right. That kid's got nine lives. But uh, as far as the plants, we always – I have a tent, a two-by-four tent that I bought for my wife, and she – gets the seeds and she loves it and it's just a hobby for us you know what i mean it's a little bit cheaper and we start everything inside inside and we get uh vegetables sooner than everybody else that just starts from seed outside around here so that's why i kind of laughed with smart was saying that because i don't think i probably would but my wife is way into it you know she likes to use all the fresh organic stuff for for cooking and we're real health nuts and uh yeah, we did. We, we grow a big garden. I meant to last year, uh, throw some up on my Instagram. I will this year. So, uh, we had a pretty good garden. We have a pretty good spot and I actually just added a couple of a raised bed to my backyard. I actually have another one I might raise too. And we were making our own soil and, uh, yeah, we have a blast with it. We, we grow a lot of the stuff other than vegetable, other than weed. So that's awesome, man. I think, uh, it's cool in places that are cold and maybe uh, the weather isn't permitting for most of the year that you can grow yourself some 
food inside with the, the modern led lights like they're efficient enough and producing your own food versus buying it um, can actually be comparative value and you also just know what's being put onto it and the pesticides and stuff that are not going onto it because even in organics there's a ton of approved pesticides that maybe you wouldn't want to use yourself or uh, necessarily even think that are on there um, so if as much as you can limit that I think is good and also just the hobby of it is really a beautiful thing I'm glad that your wife got into it and anybody that I'm trying to do it more myself that's why I always uh, encourage it and then the more I see others do it the more I push myself to keep up with them and uh Heck it's, yeah. it's I, I think even like you were saying uh, the amount of snow since world war ii i think back in those days they were talking about victory gardens and you know growing food for keeping america successful and keeping people alive and healthy because when a bunch of people are off and doing things and or when climate environment whatever it is things get bad it's good to have local sources of fresh healthy produce that you can yeah. sustain yourself off of and trade with your community have community gardens we have a community garden in my city it's beautiful um I need to participate. I want to pay for my little plot and go join up with those people. Um, the time expenses is definitely one thing, but if it's in your own, like if you have a home and you have a yard, you might be able to uh, set yourself up a uh, raised bed. I see a lot of people do it. Like instead of having to buy a hundred bags of soil to fill up a raised bed, they'll get like a bunch of um, recycled, you know, cardboard boxes and then like logs from a fallen tree. And they fill like the bottom half with stuff like that before they actually start dumping in compost and soil to mitigate the cost. And it becomes more of like a Hugo culture style bed. And uh, it can be less expensive to get started than a lot of people think. And it can be a really fun process. I'm growing plumeria right now for the first time. And it's uh, one of my only non-cannabis plants that I'm growing, but it's a fun challenge to see like how well you can get into growing something and I, one of my neighbors grows from area as well and we've sort of started bonding over it so it being part of the community is a, a great thing whether it's the cannabis community or your general community around you uh, as much as we can i think these past few years a lot of people have gotten more divided and the more we can come together and unify over whatever i think is a good thing that's funny that you brought the hugel culture thing i uh i learned a little bit about that hugel culture from uh full duplex watching some of the stuff that he was doing he's uh in direct mess with him he sent me some stuff and my uh little uh five by five raised bed i put in my backyard we did that we put down you know the leaves and the cardboard and then we did the sticks and you know just just playing around with it and having fun with it and uh hugel culture is a really cool rabbit hole to go down that's and i love all that old school stuff It's effective. And I mean, uh, cost saving is definitely undeniable. Like I've looked at even cheap soil at like the big box stores. If you start buying enough bags of it, it adds up. And if you're just trying to grow yourself something like, you know, some cucumbers or something where if you go to the store and you buy them, they're actually pretty cheap. So um, the investment over time, you're, you're going to grow garden year after year after year. Hopefully you get set up and you enjoy it. So it's something that is a um, not like a, a one time expense, but a lot of it, it goes into that first time getting started getting the actual you know thing set up but you can even use like recycled wood and things like that I, i've seen people use like a drawer from an old dresser yeah a hole into be and, using stuff with a uh, lacquer on it or anything but there's another question jack that someone's been asking like three times i wonder if we could get to it i didn't see it what did anybody no, i'm sorry i just i put it in the, the chat the air yeah. pressures yeah yeah Okay. Unless, like, if, yeah, if there's time, can you please talk about different air pressures in different pressures, like tents, positive pressures, negative pressures, and the differentials? Uh, and I'll let somebody else take that because my wife is doing something for cooking. All right, I'll jump in for a second. I, for it. It, de it depends on what you want your parameters. Like most things have a uh, like uh, click on on the rise. Like if the temperature goes above 80, it'll turn on the exhaust fan. 
And when it gets down to a certain other, there's usually a differential, like four or five degrees. When it gets down to that, it'll, it'll click off and then cycle. When it goes up to over 80, it'll turn on. When it goes to 75 or below, it'll turn off. And I like to have exhaust in my tent. So it's negative pressure, like the side sucking a little, because that um, will, will keep the um, smell from escaping if you're putting it through an air filter. As well as, um, yeah, it just, it, it has the, the airflow, you know, it's getting exchanged and stuff. Um, and then same thing with the humidity. If you have a humidifier or a dehumidifier, whatever you set the, the controls at is where, how it would work. So that's my two little two cents on it. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it's a whole lot easier to run a ventilated space with an exhaust fan. Um, so when you're moving air through the, the space, you put the exhaust fan that sucks basically the humidity out, which is usually what the sort of environmental parameter that you need to worry about the most is in that situation, heat too. But and the heat yeah. is going to be humidity is going to be a big one. Um, but it'll suck both of those out, and you know you encourage the fresh air to come into the bottom of the tent. Um, but and like you said, the smell issue for a ventilated space, when you're running all of that air through a tent, then you don't want the neighbors to necessarily smell. Um, positive pressure we would use in a sealed room as, uh, and Matthew could speak to this, in a sealed room as a IPM measure, basically, if you're running a sealed space and it's well sealed such that you can sort of hold a positive pressure, um then that'll prevent like insects and other things from being able to get into that space very easily because air will be like rushing out yeah. through any of the little cracks rather than potentially seeping in through those cracks and kind of pulling insects with it when we're running a ventilated space we kind of like threw that candle out to the wind because like we're cycling so much air through the tent anyways that like you know we try to filter it or whatever but um so that's where i would use positive pressure would be in a sealed room and the primary goal there would be pest mitigation or ipm measure great points and anybody else have any thoughts on that before we go into our final thoughts and shout outs yeah i just want to emphasize what was already said that you know what dr kirko said you know i'll put that vote of confidence let yeah a big part of positive pressure is mostly trying to keep stuff from coming in easily as you enter into an area and you know, negative pressure will, of course, pull things in and it's a cumulative effect, but obviously it's only um, important for some kinds of grows versus others Or like if you're in a greenhouse or something, it's, you know, a lot harder to hermetically seal. So, yeah. I've, I've even seen from an IPM protocol um, to the extreme, it's not a positive pressure thing, but air being used to mitigate pest pressure by they have like a jet kind of stream of air in a liquid oh, yeah, room yeah. that blows yeah. on you before you enter the cultivation, which would potentially kill or knock off a lot of the pests that you might be able to bring in on your clothes, hair, shoes, whatever. So, and even like stepping into like little vats of like bleach and other like sticky mats and things like that before they go into the cultivation setting. So some cool thoughts on that. And uh, with all that being said, I think I'll pass it first to Dr. MJ Coco. Hey, cool. So yeah, I'm Dr. MJ Coco, Coco for cannabis.com. Um, I was on the garden talk with Mr. Growit this week. So check that out. It's a cool episode just dropped yesterday. Um, and I'm, I'm 
doing a new little show. I'll probably talk to you guys more about this next week. Um, so look forward to, to sort of some more news about that. And yeah, I had a lot of fun in today's show. So I like when we get to do these, these Q&A shows. And um, yeah, thanks, Jack. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, the rest of the panel. Um, and I said Matthew specifically because I felt bad still about the xylem flowing thing. I think you were totally right with what you were saying. And I actually <laughs> not interrupted. Um, but I was I was worried. Um, not so much about you were going to be wrong, but that people were going to get sort of uh, construe it the wrong way. In any event, I think you were right, though. No, don't worry about it. Thank you, though. I I uh, appreciate all of you, and uh, I'll be back next week. And uh, yeah, grow love. Great to have you. And next up, Matthew Gates. Yeah, let me just emphasize that um, no hard feelings. And you know, I I do have a very optimistic thing. Uh, uh, outlook about people's interpretation of very technical stuff and i think that sometimes i lose myself in that so i definitely appreciate the um uh the clarification although i was getting to it but yeah you're right <laughs> so you can check me out at zenthanol.com for professional inquiries you can also check me out at my youtube channel zenthanol you can join my patreon discord through patreon and you can also find me on social media at sync angel on Twitter and Instagram. And I just dropped today uh, one of my live stream edits from Instagram now on YouTube with a bunch of additional information. And this is from January 15th. And it's about how IPM can save your resources, time, money, and labor, whether you're commercial or non-commercial. So check that out if you're interested. And the Q&A video will be up um, soon as well. Thank you very much, everyone. And the chat was amazing with his questions as always. They really were. And I hate to uh, say I wrote open panel second hour, but the questions were so good. And we had so many of them, which is sometimes not the case with the Q&A. Sometimes it's like, you know, we get a lot of the regulars and maybe they've gotten their questions out a couple weeks earlier. Things are going well for them. They're crushing it in their growth. So they don't have as many questions, but uh, we got great ones tonight and it kept us going the whole time. And I uh, would have felt remiss to not answer all of them. And when we bring people onto the panel, it becomes more of a spotlight of their grow. So I'm glad that we were able to get through so much great questions tonight. And with that said, I want to pass it next to Noah the Groa. Yeah, I had a great time today as well. Um, uh, of course, a little, you know, debate as always with the, I, I, some people call it flush and I just call it water only. But, uh, you know, I always say, hey, man, if, if you don't need it, don't do it. What works for you works for you. What works for me works for me, you know. And uh, I had a great time as always. I'm uh, Noah the Groa with two each. You can find me on Instagram. And I'll see everybody next week. Pleasure, as always, Noah. I respect both sides of the debate always. And I think that everybody's opinion is valid here. And I'm glad that we all got to share. Like, as an adults, growers, we are a community. And we don't always have to necessarily agree 100% on everything. And I think that this is something that's going to be continued to be discussed and researched and looked at. And people will disagree with the research. I've seen flushing articles that have already been uh, denounced by all the growers out there. So they're going to do more research and then that will get denounced. And then I think eventually it'll come to a place where people are going to be like, all right, here's what's actually happening. Here's really what yeah, we're you doing. Can't, so. You can't logic people out of an emotional response. This is true. But I Try think uh, it, it, uh, was a great discussion. I really enjoyed all aspects. So many great questions. Thank you so much to the chat. And I want to next pass it over to the American one, our last panelist of the evening. Jack, thanks for hosting again, panel. It was good to see everyone. Uh, everyone in chat, thanks for coming, hanging out. I'm the American one. 
on the YouTube and the American one underscore with underscore Keens on the IG. Uh, if you want to hit me up for anything and uh, yeah, it was really good, interesting stuff today. And yeah, um, I'll say, you know, we should define flushing the next time we have this great argument on this stuff, because that could change the whole entire thing, right? It could so. totally change the whole thing. I totally <laughs> so agree with that. Doubt. The semantics. So, like, know, what do we yeah. mean when we say flush? <laughs> right. So that's, that's another thing. And yeah, it's good to have these discussions because, you know, we learn stuff and we figure stuff out. So it's, I love coming here and hanging out with you guys and everyone in chat. So it was good to be here. I'm glad. I'm sorry I was late. And yeah. That's about it. Peace out, hey, everyone. Have a great week. Better late than never. We're always glad to have you. And uh, the other thing was we had seven of the nine tonight. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are busy and, and not always able to make it. But I always appreciate when we can have such a full panel of the regular panelists. So thank you guys for showing up tonight. And thank you to all the chatters for asking great questions. Really appreciate that. I, I really just uh, can't emphasize enough. Like we answered a ton of questions tonight and got through a lot of content and even the panelists ask great questions as follow-ups too so thank you all for coming and i really look forward to seeing you all next week if you want to find me jack underscore greenstock on twitter is my new uh, kind of primary place that i'll communicate but i'm also on instagram at jack greenstock like you can see here on the logo if you want to email me if you're one of those people who's not on social media jack greenstock 47 at gmail.com and my website is 50 strains.com so thank you all so much for listening uh if you enjoyed the show drop that like and we'll see you all next week peace and love girl love everyone Keep growing.